So how in the world do you enjoy Jesus when you have been a complete idiot? That's a question that we should know the answer to because our mission statement here at Grace is this. We exist to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. So what we mean by that is that through all of our ministries, how we make disciple-making disciples is that we want to ignite this passion in people to glorify and enjoy God wherever they go and whatever they do. Like, it's their lifestyle. I am made to glorify and enjoy God. So how in the world do you do that when you've been a complete idiot? How do you individually glorify and enjoy God when you've been an idiot and made a mess of your life? And then how do you ignite a passion in other people to glorify and enjoy God when you've made a mess of your life? And when you have chosen sin over Jesus. Listen, we can all be idiots sometimes. I know you probably didn't come to church expecting or wanting to be called an idiot. But let's be honest with each other this morning. When we ignore God's word, when we choose sin over Jesus, who does that? Idiots. That's who. Sinners are idiots because when they sin, they choose sin over Jesus. It's dumb to choose sin over Jesus. It's dumb to ignore God's word and try to live according to our own wisdom, right? And that's dumb, right? Can we all agree that it's dumb to ignore God's word and to try to do life our way? It's dumb to sin. And since we all sin, and since we all choose sin over Jesus all the time, what does that make us? Idiots. Listen, I, don't, I know we don't like to be called ignorant or to be called idiots. We don't like to be told that we are sinners. But if we can put our pride aside for a moment and accept what God's word says about us, then we really will begin to experience freedom. Because God's word does not idealize us. God's word does not play dress up with us. God's word is honest about our very real condition. And you have to love that about God, don't you? He's honest about us. And if we can learn to accept what he says about us in his word, then we'll start to get some traction and we'll begin seeing that we can walk in newness of life, as Paul says in Romans 6, 4. So back to the question, how in the world do you enjoy Jesus when you totally mess up your life? How in the world do you enjoy Jesus when you've been a complete idiot? We have to remember the heart of the gospel, that God always meets our mess with his mercy. And that's really good news. Because have you ever really blown it? I mean, really, really, really messed up. And you kind of dreaded coming back to Jesus with your tail between your legs? Have you ever felt like you should be put in a timeout because you've been a bad Christian? Have you ever promised Jesus that you would never do a particular sin again, only to go and do said sin, but to do it even quicker than you thought possible? Have you ever just been a dummy and dabbled in sin, knowing it was killing you? Just saying, I know this is going to kill me, but I want it bad enough. I'm just going to do it. Have you ever just stumbled over your own Christian feet? Yeah, me too. And I'm a pastor. Well, I've got some good news for you today. God always meets our mess with his mercy. I mean, isn't that good news? This is the heart of God, mercy. God's heart beats mercy to not give us what we rightly deserve. 
It is the desire of his heart to extend mercy to us. It is his delight. He delights to show mercy to us. You may not think that about God. You may think God's up there just like, fine, I'll forgive you. Just don't do it again or wait a little bit. No, he delights to be merciful to us. God always meets our mess with his mercy. He always meets our failures with his forgiveness. He always meets our guilt with his grace. He always meets our sin with his salvation. This is how God has always dealt with sinners. His tender heart always meets us right smack dab in the middle of our mess. His mercy shows up and remarkably doesn't give us what we rightfully deserve. His mercy always trumps our sin. His mercy always has the last word. And so our sin and our mess and the ugly situations that we create in our lives because of our sin and the ugly situations that we find ourselves in, all that ugliness, all that messiness does not have the final word in our lives. Mercy does. Mercy always trumps sin. Puritan Thomas Goodwin said it this way. He was a really quirky Puritan. He's my favorite. Um, He knew the the tender heart of Christ. Uh, Another Puritan, Richard Sibbs, taught him that. But I like Goodwin because he was quirky. He used to wear these nightcaps, these little hat things, out in public, but he would like stack seven or eight of them on top of each other and then walk around town. I guess people would be like, hey, pastor, and man, my pastor's weird. I like weird, quirky pastors. Thomas Goodwin was a Puritan and he was quirky. He said this though. He said, thy misery can never exceed his mercy. So no matter how bad you mess up your life, you cannot exceed or go beyond the mercy of God. No matter what mess you make of your life because of your sin, you cannot exceed God's mercy because as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 4, God is rich in mercy. He's loaded with mercy. I have a hunch that someone here today needs to hear this. No matter how many times you play the fool and stupidly choose sin, Jesus will always welcome you home. He'll be waiting on the porch looking for your prodigal hide to come back home. And when you do, he'll hug you and he'll kiss your neck and he will throw you a party. And you don't deserve any of it. But that's just the kind of God he is. He throws parties for prodigals who come home. How could he be any other way? How could he be any other way but this way? And that's exactly what God did with Abram after he was a complete bonehead standing next to the Egyptian pyramids. So let me show you. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. This might become one of your favorite Old Testament passages because it was originally written to a bunch of idiots who wanted to go back to Egypt and become slaves again because they missed the taste of watermelons. Who does that? You can read about it in Numbers chapter 11. A nation of Israel is tired of manna. It's like, oh, we missed the watermelons and the leeks and the onions. Let's go back and be slaves again just so we can taste watermelon. Who does that? Idiots. It's true. Sometimes disciples can be idiots. Okay, Genesis chapter 12. Look at verse 10 and hear the word of the Lord. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. 
when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Now notice that you have the phrase, in the land, mentioned two times in verse 10. Think about it. The land that we saw last week in Genesis chapter 12, the land that Yahweh has just promised to Abram goes through a famine. So Abram's faith will be tested as the land, just like his wife Sarai, the land is now barren. There's been no rain. There's no crops in the field, Lucille. The land cannot produce fruit. No non-GMO organic gardens. The promised land is barren, just like Sarai. So what will Abram do? Well, conventional wisdom says that you go where there is food and water, right? Duh. And that's what Abram does. He heads down to Egypt. He must have read on Twitter that there was food and water in Egypt, so off they go. Now, I don't think Abram is in the wrong or he sinned by going down to Egypt. Many commentators say that. But you know what? The text doesn't say that, does it? And that's kind of important. Abram went down to Egypt because the Nile River was there and he could water his cattle and he could survive. If there is to be a blessing and he is to have descendants, he has to live. So Abram hasn't done anything wrong here by going to Egypt. He just wants to live. He wants to survive. Where Abram went wrong, though, was lying about his relationship with Sarai, his wife. Right before they crossed the state line, right in front of the sign that said, Welcome to Egypt, Abram told Sarai to tell all the Egyptians that gawked over her that she was his sister. Now, why would the Egyptians whistle at Sarai at the pyramid construction sites? Because verse 11 tells us that she was beautiful. Yes, Sarai is 65 years old, but she's beautiful. In fact, These are the very first words of Abram that we read in Genesis. His very first words in Genesis are this, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And since we can be idiots sometimes, let me tell the married men here, say this to your wife often. Tell her that she's beautiful. Stare at her, gawk at her, whistle at her. Don't be a dummy. Now, I've written in my notes here, just sidebar, fight for your marriage. Not sure what I was going to say. I just put it in there. But take it from me. You don't want your marriage to collapse. Guard your heart. Guard your heart so that you don't drift from the Lord. Guard your heart so that your marriage doesn't collapse and fall apart. And get help. Listen, All the married people here know that there are ups and downs. There are seasons. 
Everyone needs help in their marriage at some point. If you're at a spot in your marriage and you need help, get help. Reach out. Ask people to pray for you. If you need counseling, find counselors. But don't try to do it yourself. Just as if the two of you will work on it when all you're doing is fighting. That's not working on it, is it? Take it from me. You don't want your marriage to collapse. It is the worst thing ever. So fight for your marriage. Guard your heart. Make sure you keep your heart pure with Jesus. Let him be your first love. Guard your heart and love your spouse and work on it. Okay, that's the sidebar. Abram is afraid that if the Egyptians find out that he's married to Sarai, then they will kill him and then take Sarai. And that's why he wants to lie a little. Now, it is true, Abram and Sarai are brother and sister. So it's a half-truth that he's telling us here because we'll find out in Genesis chapter 20, verse 12, that Abram and Sarai have the same dad, but not the same mom. And in the ancient Near East, this was common, especially when there were not many people to marry. So the Egyptians buy the story and they take Sarai to see Pharaoh. Now, a quick word, uh, on a note on the word Pharaoh. It means the great house. Originally, the term Pharaoh did not refer to the king of Egypt, but rather to his palace. So it wasn't until the middle of the 18th dynasty, 1575 to 1308 BC, that the expression became the title of the king. It's kind of like uh, saying the White House said today. Well, the White House is a building. It didn't say anything, but we know what it means. So Pharaoh at this point meant the great house, the, the palace where the king of Egypt lived. So Sarai was most likely taken to the great house, the Egyptian palace, where she was most likely on her way to becoming a part of Pharaoh's harem. Meanwhile, She's taken away, and then Abram gets blessed with all these resources, cattle, donkeys, and servants. And so Abram's let's fudge a little bit about our relationship plan is working. But now he has put his wife Sarai at risk, as well as the fulfillment of Yahweh's promises earlier in Genesis chapter 12 that we saw last week. Yes, God is blessing Abram. He now has enough animals to start his own petting zoo, but he has put Sarai and he has put the promise from Yahweh in danger. And so Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, has to intervene and save Sarai and keep Pharaoh from interfering with the blessing promised to Abram. Abram's biggest problem, though, wasn't fibbing a little bit about his relationship with Sarai. His biggest problem was this, not believing the promises of God. He let fear eat up his faith. He failed to believe Yahweh's promise. And so it was all a big mess. So Abram was far away from the promised land now. Sarai was in danger of becoming Mrs. Pharaoh. And instead of Abraham being, or Abram being a blessing to the nations, Pharaoh was about to be stricken with plagues all because of Abram's little lie. Abram had made a mess of it all, and Yahweh had to fix it. Does that remind you of anything like your life and mine? We're always making a mess of things because of our sin, but God is merciful, and he often intervenes to keep us from making it even worse. His mercies truly are new every morning, and they are new every mess, every mess that we create 
His mercy meets us in our mess. And that ought to make you want to run down to the communion tables right now, mid-sermon. But let's hold off, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a bit. And so what happened next? If this was a show on Netflix, the episode would end here, and you'd watch the next one right away, because you've got to know what happens next. So let's find out. Look at verse 17. But Yahweh afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So instead of being a blessing to the nations, instead of being a blessing to Egypt, Abram has now opened up a can of plagues. Because Pharaoh was about to say, I do to Sarai, Yahweh had to intervene and stop the wedding before they ordered flowers. Yahweh's gift to Pharaoh and his house was a great plague. Now we're not sure what the plague was, but whatever it was, it got their attention And Abram got his walking papers. He and Sarai were quickly escorted out of Egypt. They messed up and almost messed up the whole Genesis 12 plan. And we, like them, can certainly make things messy and tarnish God's plans. But we can't keep his will from being done. It's true, we will make some terrible decisions in life. And we may make some super sin-soaked, selfish, boneheaded decisions that will wreak havoc in our lives or the lives of the people that we love. And we'll have to live with the consequences of those decisions. But our hope is that these things don't destroy God's ultimate plan. He uses them for his purposes. He uses them for his glory. He even uses all these messy situations for our good. Sure, we may act and behave in a way that dishonors the Lord. We may act like idiots. But in the end, he can turn things around and use them for his glory. And so the story of redemption throughout the whole Bible is that God always meets our mess with his mercy. He always meets our failures with his forgiveness. He always meets our guilt with his grace. He always meets our sin with his salvation. This is how God has always dealt with sinners. Abram failed the test in Egypt. But the good news is that we have a Savior who never failed. Jesus was in the wilderness and endured a 40-day famine, if you will, and he came out victorious, having resisted all temptation. And when we fail him, when we are faithless, just like Abram, we have this promise to fall back on in 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. That verse right there is your invitation from Jesus himself to walk down to this communion table today in faith, even though you have been faithless. 2 Timothy 2.13 is the personal invitation from Jesus to you today, this morning, for you to walk down to these communion tables, not treating it like a funeral, but a celebration 
to come in faith, trusting the promises of God, even though you have been faithless. To come down here and bring your sin, because that's all you can really bring to God. And when we bring our sin to God, he does not show up with a bunch of I told you so's. He doesn't drop a bunch of shame on you's on us. He doesn't meet our mess with how dare you's. He always meets our mess with mercy because he is the father of mercies. So what do you do when you make a mess of everything like Abram and Sarai? Where do you go? You go home. That's what they did. You go home again. That's exactly what Abram and Sarai did. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of Yahweh. So Abram went back to the campsite that he had been back uh, earlier, before the famine, the place where, as we saw last week, he built an altar to the Lord. Now, it's interesting that the text says that he camped between Bethel and Ai, because in Hebrew, Bethel means house of God, and Ai means ruins, or the place of ruins. This is where Abram is in his life. He's between the ruins and the mess he has created and the house of God. He's in between the mess that he created in Egypt and the altar that he had previously built for the Lord. It's a picture of our lives. We create a mess. We may even ruin our lives by our sin and our choices. And so our past is behind us. And in front of us is the altar, the place where we meet God. The place we left in order to go down to our own Egypt, only to come back home again. Abram, just like us, is between Ai, ruin, and Bethel, the house of God. Remember, Moses is writing the book of Genesis to people who left Egypt and then kept on sinning and making mess after mess after mess in the wilderness. And he's telling them about the time Abram was a boneheaded idiot who lived in the fear of man and did not trust the promises of God. Moses is writing to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness who've made a mess of their life. He's like, he's telling him, the father of our faith, Abram, did the exact same thing that you did. And he came back to Yahweh. And you can come back to Yahweh too. That's what Moses is doing as he writes Genesis chapter 12. He's talking to the original audience in the wilderness. And he's talking to us too. And so Abram returns to the altar that he had made that we saw last week. And what does he do there? Verse 4 tells us, And there Abram called upon the name of Yahweh. This is repentance. This is returning to your first love after you totally blow it. Abram calls on the name of Yahweh, the gracious, faithful, merciful God. He's collapsing on God, crying out for mercy and grace. And so Genesis chapter 13 verse 4 is the Old Testament version of Hebrews 4.16, which says this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace 
that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Abram was doing Hebrews 4 before Hebrews 4 was cool. He's starting over again. It's a reminder to us that there are fresh starts with God. Aren't you glad that there are fresh starts with God? That Jesus gives us fresh starts, that we can just start over again. Aren't you glad that you can blow it big time and just return home and find grace and mercy for every need? David says in Psalm 43, verse 4, one of my favorite verses, he says, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. See, that's what you find when you return. Your God, who is your exceeding joy. Not your God who has a frown on his face and saying, it's about time you repented and came home. Not that God. You return to God your exceeding joy. I mean, can it be? Can there be joy at the altar when you return? Can there be joy at the communion table? Thought it was supposed to be a funeral. Can there be joy at the communion table? Can there be joy in repentance? Yes. Some people wrongly think that repentance is like eating liver and drinking sauerkraut juice. Some people wrongly think that repentance and coming back to the altar like Abram is sucking on a lemon. Ugh but it's not like that at all. It's sweet because you get Jesus. Is that how you typically think of repentance? You think of like, I gotta cry a bunch and beat myself up and slowly mosey my way up to God. Maybe he won't notice that I'm there. Or do you think of repentance as, this is joyful because I get Jesus. Because it's his kindness that leads us to repentance, right? Who knew that, who knew that repentance could be so sweet. Owning up to your sin, owning up up to your foolishness, owning up to your selfishness doesn't seem like it would be a good thing, but it is because you get Jesus. Isn't he what you really want? I mean, on the surface, repentance seems like it would be like eating liver and drinking prune juice, but it's actually comforting. Holding on to your sin, loving it so much, refusing to admit you've done wrong. That is eating liver and drinking prune juice. That is sucking on a lemon. That's an awful place to be. But confession, repentance, collapsing on Jesus, that's good. It's a hug. That's what it is. To repent is to be hugged by Jesus. When you think of repentance, I hope you don't think of it as you know, sucking on a lemon. To repent is to be hugged by Jesus, to be embraced by Jesus. It's a Luke 15, prodigal come home embrace. Why? Because God always meets our mess with his mercy. Dane Ortland says this, that God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. The things about you that make you cringe most make him hug hardest. I mean, isn't that wonderful? The things that we have done that make us cringe with embarrassment, like I can't believe I said that, I can't believe I did that. 
That's where Jesus hugs the hardest. That's where he squeezes his tight. That's not the place where Jesus is like, ooh, get away from me. I can't believe you did that. But those things that we are ashamed of, we're just embarrassed. We just cringe thinking about what we've said and done. That's where Jesus comes and he hugs us the hardest. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that what you want in a savior? I saw this on Instagram the other day. It said this. He's not an I told you so kind of God. He's a come here, welcome home. I'll keep you safe. I'll keep you warm. Let me hold you. I love you. I have so much for you. I am not mad at you. Trust me. I will never leave you. My grace will never run out. Stay with me kind of God. Isn't that what you're looking for in God? Or do you want a God being peddled by so many preachers saying he's mad at everybody? You better watch your, get out of line. You better watch out, lightning bolts. Is that what you want in a God? Or do you want that kind of God? You certainly don't want the opposite of that. Listen, prodigals and dummies and idiots who make a wreck of their lives are always welcome home. So let me ask you today, is that you today? Have you been running from Jesus? Have you made a mess of your life? You can come home. You just repent. That just means turn. That's what repentance means. It's a change of mind, a change of direction. Jack Miller said that repentance is just collapsing onto Jesus. That's it. You just kind of drop into his arms. You quit running. You stop. You turn. You just fall into his loving arms and say, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to go be with Jesus. Now, sure, the consequences of your sin might remain. Sometimes that's the way. Sometimes you cannot get away from the consequences of your bad decisions, your sin, and your prodigaling. But if it's true that you can't get away from the consequences, let me ask you, what's better? Consequences with Jesus or consequences without Jesus? Trust me, take it from this professional idiot. Better to do consequences with Jesus by your side than to go it alone. Jesus offers mercy and grace to aid you with your consequences. So have you been running from Jesus? Maybe you've been dabbling in porn or drink or harboring bitterness or jealousy. You fill in the blank with whatever you want to. And just come home. Come back to the altar. Come back to your exceeding joy. Come to this table today where you will find God your exceeding joy. So cheer up, Grace. Jesus likes idiots. Jesus likes idiots who make a mess of their lives. In fact, some of Jesus' best friends are idiots. Abram, the 12 disciples, me, you. And that's how we enjoy Jesus when we mess up our lives. It's simple, but oh, so significant. We bring our sin to him because that's all we can We confess, we repent, we turn. There's a change of mind, a change of direction. When we take God at his word and we believe what it says, then the Holy Spirit comes, begins digging up the sins that we have buried deep within, the sins that we have let relax comfortably in our hearts. We bring them to Jesus. We bring our failures. We go to the altar like Abram and we receive his grace. And then we really begin to enjoy him. Do you want to enjoy Jesus? 
I mean, do you really, really want to enjoy Jesus? That's how you do it. Is that how you think of Christianity, enjoying Jesus? That is the essence of Christianity, enjoying Jesus. I know most people out there don't think that. They think of Christianity as keeping the rules, staying in line, you're going to get in trouble, God's going to say shame on you. The essence of Christianity is simply enjoying Jesus. Do you want to do that? Imagine what new work of the Holy Spirit would happen here at Grace if we simply brought our failures to Jesus and received his grace, received his mercy with the empty hands of faith. I think we'd actually begin to enjoy Jesus. I mean, imagine that. Enjoying the God who lived and died for us and for our sins. Imagine that. Imagine what new work of the Holy Spirit would happen here at Grace if we started confessing our sins and taking Jesus at his word. How might God change our families, our marriages, our relationships, our church, our city, if we started confessing our sins, if we started taking Jesus at his word? I think God is saying, if you will, God is saying this to us today. Try me. Start confessing your sins. Start taking me at my word. Start believing my promises. Give up your own ideas and forsake your so-called wisdom. And come to the altar. Let me unearth those buried sins that are resting comfortably in the deep recesses of your heart. And watch how my spirit will usher in a new season of joy and mission. Come to the altar and I will be your exceeding joy. And so now the question is, who wants in? Who wants to see the Holy Spirit usher in a new season of joy and mission here at Grace? Who wants to see the Holy Spirit usher in a new season of joy and mission in their own personal life? Who wants in? Well, this is where it starts, right here. At the communion table, at the altar, if you will. Where we celebrate the fact that Jesus paid it all. Right here, at this table, we celebrate the wonderful gospel truth that God always meets our mess with his mercy. So let's meet him here today. Let's go to the altar of God, to God, our exceeding joy. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you welcome sinners, that you save sinners. Thank you that you did everything in order to save sinners through your life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Thank you that when prodigals come to their senses in the faraway land, in the pig slop, and we come home, that you run to greet us, and you hug us, and you kiss our neck, and you bring us home, and you throw a party for us. Who does that, Jesus? Who throws parties for people who have pushed a person away? You do. And so we come to you today, Jesus, and we, we only bring our sin because it's all we have to offer. And in a glorious exchange, you take our sin and you give us your righteousness. And we thank you for that. Meet us at the table today. Be our exceeding joy today. We want to return to you, Jesus, our first love. In your name, amen.